So we have been thinking about love in motion. And uh, this is our last talk on this little series. And I want to round it out as we remember, first of all, that we saw the love of God that we have for him, that God has for us. We then continue to think about love and ask the question, is it okay to love ourselves? And maybe you'll remember what we considered in that particular area. Then we talked about loving one another. We talked about the fact that we are family to one another and should be loving one another as we love our family. We talked about the love of neighbor last Sunday. And finally, we'll talk today about the love of the world. That's the last direction in which love travels. And it maybe is a sign of the completion of our journey and understanding of love if we would grasp the truth that we are invited to love the world. It brings us a little dilemma when we read the Bible and this whole question of loving the world because there are two contradictory ideas or two apparently contradictory ideas because John, uh, who has been a bit of our source in this series, tells us not to love the world. I mean, flat out, he says, don't love the world. And then you think, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say somewhere that God loves the world? Well, obviously it does. In fact, if there's you know an overarching kind of message of the Bible, it's the fact that God loves the world. So how in the world, no pun intended there, are we to understand what John says when he says don't love the world? Well, a lot of theological questions are hard to answer. This one's not, because um, it's, it's really quite plain. John is saying to us that there, there's a world in different aspects that we should consider. There is the world system, and the world system is a bad thing. The world system is the way that the world has been affected and infected by sin. And so John says that the world, with all of its drives and passions, is passing away. So you shouldn't love the world, you shouldn't love the things in the world, because the world and everything in it is passing away. And so we're faithful to Christ when we examine um, the environment in which we live, which is the world system, which is the way the world thinks when it's fallen, the way the world behaves when it's fallen, um, the way the world values when it's infected by sin. But the other aspect of the world that, of course, is very important is the world of people. So we are not told not to love the world of people. We are told not to love the world system, the world as a way of thinking. But on the contrary, we are called to love the people of the world. And the most familiar verse maybe of the whole Bible is John 3.16, where we are told that God loved the world so much. And what a lovely verse. I mean, every time we come back to it, we kind of meditate on it in a fresh way. And we understand that this is a, a magnificent thing, that when God thinks about the world of people, the world of people whom he has created, he loves them. 
And his love takes all kinds of directions and expressions, but we are told that God loves the world. So I want to bring you this morning to a, a lovely verse in Revelation, which is almost at the end of the Bible, and it talks about what God has in mind for the whole world of people. Uh, and and this is, is really sort of the conclusion or the celebration of the whole story of the Bible. If, if we would like to find some way to kind of characterize the story that the Bible tells, we might say it's the story of God loving the world. And we'll see in a moment that that begins in a very small way, but it culminates in a grand way in the book of Revelation. So here's, here's what we read there. And this is John, our friend again. Um, and he has a revelation, and he sees the things that are going to happen in the future. He sees those things that are yet to come for him, and in fact for us as well, as he discloses what um, he is told about the, the end times. Here's what we read. After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every tribe or every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. Let me read it again. After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. Do you know, seven times in the book of Revelation, this little phrase recurs. The identification of four sort of entities of people. And my little slip up about which word came first wasn't intentional, but it could have been because the order of the four words is mixed up through the book of Revelation. And some scholars have tried to figure out why, you know, the order is changed in this chapter. I'm sure somebody has written a PhD thesis on all of this, and if we took time, we'd go find it and see whether or not they passed their defense of their thesis in saying this is why it was in this order. The point today is not to figure out why these words are given in the order in which they occur. But I just want to look with you about the four words, and then we're going to back way up to what I said and talk about the way that the love of God started in a small way and then culminates in this big way. The reason I think it's important to identify the four words is just to show the, the scope of God's vision and God's love for the world and for the end times. So if we were to ask God, well, what is it that you were looking for? What is it that you're hoping for? What is it that all of the things that you have done through time were for? He would answer us by his words of scripture. My vision is a day when there is an incredible worship service for the Lamb, and we understand what that means. That's the whole sort of salvation history of Jesus and who he was and how he has been exalted. And God would say that his vision, the reason he did everything that he did was to see this worship service in which people from and then 
we would find the identification of where they came from. Who are these people that are on God's heart? Who is the world that God loves? And today, my hope is that our, our notion of that world can, can get expanded and expanded and expanded and, and that we can be motivated to love with God the people who constitute those that are on his heart, those that are on, on his mind. So we're told that there are people from every nation and tribe and people and language. So are they all synonyms? Is it just four ways to say the same thing? It sort of is, but it does parse them out a little individually and says what it is that's on God's heart, what it is that's on God's mind. When we come across the word nation, it generally means sort of a social-political entity. So that's what we might think. A nation is the sorting of people into a group that we might identify because it is sociologically or politically defined, that, that in this group of people or at this place where people are, there are certain things that would describe them and we would understand them to generally be referring to a nation. The second thing is that we're told that there are people from every tribe and the word tribe is one that refers to what we might call a biological or genetically connected group. There are people who are related to one another somehow, not just because of the country they live in, um, but because there's actually something genetic that is similar between them. There's something biological that has caused them to be part of this group. Who is it that God loves? Who is it that God has in mind? Well, it's people from every land as a nation. It's people whose sort of genetic ancestry we could trace back and say they are this sort of family of people. And then the third thing is that it's every nation and tribe and the term peoples usually refers to a crowd of individuals. It's a crowd of individuals uh, emphasizing the individual aspect of this that when God considers what it is that's on his mind and heart, um, what his vision is, what he sees in Revelation, is a crowd of individuals. I think that's important to to just dwell on for a second, that when God thinks about the people he loves and the world that he loves, he doesn't think of us en masse. He, He doesn't think of us as, you know, that typical group of people. He thinks of us as a crowd of individuals, which is an interesting insight uh, given the history of world populations because we particularly, more than any time before, actually focus on individuals. We, We may actually be faulted by being too individualist in our thinking. And yet it is important to understand that when God thinks of us, he thinks of individuals. And, and when you begin to imagine that, it, it would explode your mind. How, how could God actually think individually about the crowd of people? Well, he does. So when Susan told us about two people that are sponsored, God knows who she's talking about. Do you know that? That, that he knows who they are. He, he knows the whole story 
of where they've come from and where they're going. And that God thinks of us and knows us individually. There's one um, particular sort of nuance of, of the doctrine of election. I'll just mention it. It is that the idea that chosen in Christ is um, kind of a group activity. That those that are called chosen in Christ by Paul, some scholars, theologians, are saying, well, it, it's God chose this idea of a, a group of people that would be called the chosen. And if you get into that group, then, you know, you qualify. It, it's a bit deficient because God didn't just sort of arbitrarily say, well, chosen is a group of people. He, he, he knows us, chose us, um, watches us individually. Reading through the Psalms, we find David obsessing really with that. He, he keeps saying, um, for one thing, he says, I don't understand what you're doing because I know that you know me and I know that I am trying to live in relationship with you and I thought you would be this way and I'm wondering how you're going to be this way. But when I come back to my senses, I, I remember, but you do know me. You haven't forgotten about me. You knew me before I was born. You knew me when I was in my mother's womb. You knit every piece together. And that's one of the wonderful things that the story of God's um, great love began with his loving us with an everlasting love before we were even created. That before we came into even our parents' thoughts, uh, God already knew us. He already had designs on us. And to understand that, that we have been created in the image of God is to understand that we have been created as unique individuals, albeit a crowd of us, um, but God knows us individually. So as, as John was given this incredible vision of, of the future times, um, he, he might have had this insight that, that God would gaze upon this mass of people and would know who they were one by one. Do you ever go back to old family photographs and try to find out who's who in these photographs? And, and then you always come up with a bit of a conundrum. Who's that one over there? Nobody tells me who that person is. Was that my weird uncle? Right? But it's the individual. That's what brings meaning to any group of people. The last thing that um, John sees is that we are people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And the term language um, re refers actually specifically to, to not only speech and language, but to dialect. And, you know, to realize that when God sees the group of people whom he has provided his love to and for whom his son gave his life, he comes down to the very way they talk, to their actual speech and language. Uh, I remember several years ago, um, we were involved in, in a movement in Toronto called the Intercultural Church and trying to understand how 
the church could be better expressed as an intercultural, not multicultural, but an intercultural body of people. And so we had a friend come and do a workshop with us. He came from the States, and he had written a book called Where the Nations Meet. And one of the things that, that we talked about with him was this whole sort of uniqueness of, of speech and dialect and language. And I think for the first time, um, somebody told me what I didn't know about human language because here's what it was. He claimed that language existed before Babel. Languages existed before Babel. And I thought, is that right? Because I kind of depended on uh, languages being a part of the curse or a part of the condemnation that came via Babel. I, I still have my Latin book at home. I've, it's called The Approach to Latin. I've messed that up and called it something else. The inside cover says, Latin is a language as dead as dead can be. First it killed the Romans, now it's killing me. <laughs> that was my view of languages, and the first language I learned was Latin. So Stephen proposed that if we go back and read the text, we'll actually find that God separated people out according to their language. So when it comes to the, the sons of Noah, um, they are told to us um, as the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, who were... Um, sort of sent to these parts of the world with their own language. Now, what happened at Babel then? Was it a curse? It was a curse, but probably, as Stephen explained to us, um, there was a common language. There was a universal language. We would maybe call it a trade language. And what God did at Babel was he confused the trade language. And I would say something, and Wayne would look back at me and say what my son often said, I hear the words you're saying, I don't know what they mean. Right? So that, that was the confusion. The confusion was that the trade language came out wrong or was heard wrong so that they were not able to cooperate. But I think the point of all of this is that human language is one of the gifts of God to us. And if, if you love languages, I, I kind of like languages, being able to understand anything about languages gives you a doorway into the culture that speaks that language. The vocabulary they have um, probably uh, results from the ways that they live life, the ways that they practice their community and so on. And so certain languages will have um, a different variety of terms for, for, you know, one noun, for example. I don't know how many it was, but somebody told me how many words there are for snow in some of the indigenous languages that are from the north where you need several words for snow if snow is not just something that happens somewhere else, right? Every nation, tribe, people and language. In a way, uh, just a means of, of identifying th that it's everyone, that it's people from everywhere, that it's people from 
every kind of characteristic, but there's not an exception. There's not, uh, you know, something where John is given an aspect of the revelation that says, oh, but it really, sorry, it excludes these people. I, I think this is a universal group of words that says when God is looking into the future, and if we could ask him what he sees, he would tell us that he sees a universal group of people from everywhere. So we go back and wonder about how all of this kind of shaped up uh, because we've made some mistakes along the way on this, haven't we? Um, we have not properly or um, adequately or completely understood that what God is after is not just a homogeneous group whom he favors, but it's a heterogeneous group. It's a, it, it's a, a, a group from every which where, right? It's people from all of these categories that God is dreaming of and longing for. So it began back in Genesis chapters 11 and 12. And we're going to do a series after Easter uh, on the life of Abraham. Uh, I think we're going to call it, what are we going to call it, Mary? Against all hope. Isn't that a fantastic phrase? So we'll, we'll see how we can hang our, our learning on that little phrase. But back in Genesis chapter 12, here's what God said to one guy. So up until now, you know, we have interesting stories and interesting families um, but it doesn't look like it's going in the right direction, right? Adam and Eve kind of went south. I don't know if it was literally south, but their story went south, and then they had sons, and that didn't go so well. And, you know, the early story of the Bible is, is messy till we get to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and here's a person who is from nowhere, right? He's from someplace away from anywhere that we know, certainly. And God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. Boy, if you want to track what has happened in the story of world religions, the fact that we are one of what is called a group of three monotheistic religions, we all go back to Father Abraham. He's the start of it all. So whether you're Christian or Jewish or Muslim, Father Abraham started it all. And it's a great topic of conversation for us to say well let's go back to what we agree on where we all began and try to figure out how it went from that point on but that's the story of God's enormous love for us his redemptive love for us this is the beginning of God loving the world so much he loved the world so much that he loved one person so much and it's an exciting story of what happened when God came after this one person and what, what God did for him and when he succeeded and when he messed up and what all came after that. But it began with God choosing one man. 
then we began to get confused about what God was trying to do. Because out of Abraham came a nation. Um, the story of Israel is one of the chapters early on in this story. And remember, God has said, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth because of you, Abraham, or Abram at that point. Then came the nation of Israel, and they heard that God loved them. In fact, they heard about God's favor of them, and they twisted God's favor into what really was expressed by them as favoritism. So God's favor was mistaken for there being God's only favorite, that there would be favoritism and that the rest of the world did not matter to God. And in actual fact, the story of God relating to other nations might well have confused them because it did, did seem as though God was saying, let's kill all the other nations. So maybe that's another series for another pastor. But, um, God says, I'm going to bless the whole world because of you, Abram. And I'm going to start with a people, a nation, the nation of Israel. But even in, in the forming of that nation, God made it clear to them that they were to be a light to the nations. They were to um, introduce the nations to their God. And in Deuteronomy, Moses promised them that if they were to live according to the covenant, the nations around them would first of all be amazed at the character of their God and the character of their relationship with that God, and they would be drawn to that God. And when we get into the prophets, we hear the prophets saying, okay, Israel, you got it entirely wrong. Because rather than being a light to the nations, you have brought disrepute to God's name. So rather than your lives attracting people to your God, you have brought disrepute to your God. So, so God speaks and says, I'm going to do a new thing. And then we get into another chapter that brings us into the new covenant, into the New Testament. And we find that what Jesus comes to do is to deliberately um, pivot between one nation and the whole world of nations. And so we find that um, when Jesus has come and has perfected his work on Calvary, he says to the disciples before he leaves, now, you're going to be my witnesses. And where will you be my witnesses? Well, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. So, so Jesus made that clear. And then the early church, first of all, had a fight with the nation of Israel in, in the sense of the Jewish people of the day. And the Jewish people of the day said, we, we don't accept who you are. This Messiah that you claim, is, we don't believe who he was. So we're quite satisfied to stay with our religion and practices but then when they did turn to the messiah and they began to form the church they also got stuck in this dilemma and said yeah but you can't just let anyone in can you right 
So they said, if, if a person, if a Gentile, oh my goodness, even to think of it, if a Gentile wants to be in the church, surely they have to come the Jewish way. They would have to be circumcised. And the Apostle Paul notably fought them and fought them and fought them so that there finally came about the understanding that what God was doing was not just either for Israel or for a Jewish church, but for the whole world. And the Great Commission was the beginning of final chapters into God's great love story where the whole world, the uttermost part, wherever that is, is to be witnessed to um, through the testimony of the, the disciples as they are sent into the world. Did we get it right once we heard that that was what we were supposed to do? Sometimes we did and sometimes we didn't. But God's great finale is that day in heaven when there is a great worship celebration and then God says to everyone who's looking, would you please look, this is what I wanted to do. No one excluded. The uttermost part ha has been reached. And the world missionary movement over the last several decades has examined the world and has looked for the peoples of the world and even looked for hidden peoples of the world that still needed to hear some incredible news about a God who loved them, a God who does love them, and who wants to invite them to know him as well. When did we sometimes get it wrong? We sometimes got it wrong when we thought the same way as Israel did and the Jews of the New Testament did, even the converted Jews of the New Testament. And that is that we mistook the good news as being culture, not just Christ. The good news is Christ. The good news is not Israel's culture. It's not Jewish culture. It's not North American culture. It isn't British culture, because that's where we first got ourselves quite confused. It's not Canadian culture now. It's not sending culture it is Christ. And when Christ is delivered, um, and yet the package around him is not welcomed or is not understood, it's a terrible shame because Christ is the answer. He is the gospel. He is the good news. Not all the trappings around Christ and all of the ways that we have tried to sort of flesh out our relationship with him. So I, I think of several examples of that. When I, was, when I was in college, I worked in a church, and we had um, a coffee house. Maybe you remember coffee houses. Uh, Susan doesn't. She's too young. I have to qualify week by week because Susan has reminded me that most people who listen may be my age, but not her. So we're good. <laughs> The coffee house was a great outreach, but the people who came to understand the gospel in the coffee house were a bunch of hippies. Like they were, they were a bunch of typical 70s radicals, right? They had long hair and, you know, 
One day, um, my friend and I brought a, a convert from the coffee house to church where the pastor had been my pastor in Northern Ireland. Um, and we brought our friend to church, and the pastor met him at the church door and said, son, when you get a haircut, you can come back. When do you think he came back? Zero times. What, what was the problem there? The problem was that the pastor misunderstood the culture for Christ. Many years ago, I, I traveled in uh, Kenya to a, a lovely place called Gatab up in the, the north of the Rift Valley. And in Gatab, there was a church. And it wasn't the church. The mission I was with was African Inland Mission, and, and they were doing lovely, proper work in, in the, the cultural context. But there was a church that had been built by another sort of sending country organization thing. And I went to church. So now this is in, in the mountains. I mean, it, it's a gorgeous place. You can gaze from the mountain down into the valley. You hear the, um, um, you know, the chirping of all kinds of animals. Um, just an amazing place. And, and when I went to church, Strangely, there was, it was a little building. They lived in what they called shampas, which were built out of sticks and, and stones and mud and all of that. And the people loved their shampas. They loved the little place. But there was this little church built out of stone. It looked like an English church. And I thought it just looked a little bit strange. We went inside, and there were pews, like pews, like, like an old church pews and there was a pulpit and they had hymn books in the pews and I, I had heard the people they gathered around fires at night and so on and they sang songs and played instruments I'd, I'd never seen before and drank this wonderful um, tea drink um, but when we got in church they'd lost the, the vibrancy of, of their culture. They, they were, were told that they had to sing from the English hymnals in the English language, which they didn't speak. And the sermon came from a missionary who looked like he was a parish minister in wherever. And I thought, surely somebody says, hello, there's an elephant in the room or something here doesn't look right. But nobody said that. They mistook culture for Christ. What they needed to do and what has happened and how it has become and how the missionary movement is, is learning and growing and, and thriving. They needed to ask the question, what does it look like when people in this culture meet Christ? Not does it, what does it look like when people in this culture take our culture so they can have Christ? That's what we got wrong in Israel, in the Jewish-Gentile debate in the church, and in the missionary movement, sad to say, too many times. What does it look like for Christ to be welcomed inside this culture? 
which means that we must regularly shed the wrappings of Christianity and say whatever it looks like for you to know Christ is what we will celebrate together. And some of the most beautiful um, expressions of the church around the world are expressions of the church that are fully true to the culture in which people have grown up. Now, are there parts of culture that need to be dispensed with? Yes. I mean, that's the world that we need not to love. But many parts of, of culture are simply God's gift of home to us. They're what give us the sense of familiarity, that give us how you're supposed to behave. And so in, in many cultures, we find that there are lovely, redemptive, positive aspects that when Christ comes to the folks in that culture and they embrace him and bring these aspects of their culture, they adorn the gospel rather than find themselves encumbered by the trappings of the gospel. When it comes to that worship service in heaven, um, it's not going to look like this. You know, don't you ever just wonder in fun what it will look like? I mean, John said it was a crowd. It was too great a crowd to even number. You know, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands besides. And all of creation crowded around. All of the angelic beings gazing in and being hushed in the holiness of that moment. And when you look around, you might find someone who looks like you, but you might not find someone who looks like you. And then, for fun, I sort of wonder what we're all going to look like. I mean, because does God not show that he loves diversity? So why would he make us all the same when we get to heaven? I don't think he will. I, I think there will be the kind of diversity of creation. There will also be the learning um, of, of, of imagination and 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 travel and exploration because it's not all done when we get to heaven. I mean, we have forever and ever and ever and ever, and maybe even then we won't get to the limits of the diversity that that is God. So certainly I think we probably won't be a church like this or some other church that we imagine. We'll be something else, and the culture of heaven will be one that fully explores a relationship with, with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God loved the world so much. So do we love the world? I mean, or do we have still some kind of latent, um, you know, sort of cultural dominance views of things that still sees that it's Christ but wrapped in some imperialist ideologies or wrapped in but really good Christians would look like this or really good Christians would talk like this or would do these things or do we say boy we have to stop that because if if we ever put a hindrance in front of someone by our culture and they can't see the gospel, we will have done such an injustice to them. So we need to say, to whatever degree I have some kind of superiority 
in my identity as a Christian or as a Canadian, whatever it is. I need to say, wait, wait a minute, because God doesn't want, you know, a, a who's who in heaven. He wants a, an everyone from everywhere person in heaven. So do I despise someone by how they appear? I, I need to repent of that. Do I think it would be great if these people came to Christ because they'd be great converts? That's a bad idea. It's not the way God thinks at all. Over the years, I've had the privilege of, of going to many places, and they're, they're just exciting and vibrant. I was thinking this week of, of a trip to Gabon, and Gabon is right in the middle of the world, almost literally, and I, I got to go to the Albert Schweitzer Hospital and see where he did his theology slash medicine. Incredible. Uh, got to stand on the equator. I think that's the only time I've actually been on the equator. It was right there. There was a sign, so I knew. You were standing on the equator. I went to church there. I think I told you about the drums that they played down the river. That scared me when I first heard them, and I wondered what was going to happen when the drums got louder. It was, it was the call to people to come to church from tribes all the way up and down the river. And as, as the time for gathering as church arrived, and church was a, a thatched, covered, huge room sort of thing, People from every direction around the church started coming towards the church, singing in choirs. And you could hear them from every direction. And then they would all, as they converged on the building, they all began to sing the same thing. It got louder and louder and louder. It was mostly French along with some other indigenous languages, but, but French is their, their language. I... I got to speak through a French interpreter who was a short-term missionary from Germany who was staying with some Canadian missionaries. So put all that together. It was the most glorious thing. And I thought, would, would I rather go to church here or in the nice building back home? And I thought, I mean, at home is comfortable to me. But there's something here that is absolutely true to their culture that when they met Christ, they met him with all of the beauties of their culture. And they said, how much more meaningful these expressions are going to be when the content is the gospel. And so their music, lovely with all of its different characteristics, was contributed to worshiping Christ and calling one another to come and celebrate who he was who he is. God loved the world so much. What world? The world of people. God loves people. He's absolutely head over heels in love with people. Face by face, color by color, language by language, city by city, country by country, they occupy God's heart and God's mind because God so loved the world. Shouldn't we? So celebrate the world. Learn something, as Susan says, about some country, some culture, and say, wow, that's interesting. I wonder if they'll do that in heaven or whatever. God so loved the world.